the Exploring Unexplained Phenomena radio program. I'm Scott Colborn, and with me over here is my buddy Jim Shorty. Hi, guys, and girls, and pets, and UFOs, aliens, watches, whatever. Jim, you've told me already off mic how your week's been. Um, Tell the listeners what kind of weather we're going to get. Is it patchy fog? Well, let's see. Yeah, today they're saying patchy fog. I didn't see any on the way in, but uh, out in the countryside, maybe. And a high of 32 degrees. So, you know, not great, but not horrible. It, It could be worse. Oh, yeah, compared to what we've had. Yeah, this is okay. Um. And a big, uh, big conversation point for all the people living in Lincoln, Nebraska, are the city streets. Mm-hmm. Every year. <laughs> Every year. Every year. And so the street that I live on from the top of the hill down to South 27th is solid ice. So I've tried to mm-hmm. warn everybody that when they're going eastbound on that street that to go about five miles an hour or well, less. And I was amazed when I went through there Monday night that I could actually get traction on that street. I, oh, it's gotten worse. You know, I, I, well, it was a sheet of ice then. I mean, you could skate on it. Yeah. But uh, I just took it slow, and I didn't have any trouble. There's a couple of those those Facebook memes going around about people ice skating on streets. Mm-hmm. And the one that I was going to comment on, and I didn't, was that the guy was doing a great job, except he had his hands in his pockets. Oh yeah, and when you, you ski, you don't yeah. you don't do that. Uh-uh. Yeah, you need uh, need that those for balance. Yep, and if you fall, sure. and you get your hands in your pockets, you can't you can't uh, stop yourself very easily. <laughs> okay, well, oh, well let's let's get on with the show. We've got Charlene with the Capital Humane Society, and this is officially pet talk. Hey, how about that for an opening, Charlene? Hello. Wow. <laughs> hey, how are you? Things are really well, thank you. How are the how's the crew out there, and um, how about a cold weather tip for people? Sure. So our um, staff is doing very well, taking excellent care of the animals. We're looking forward to having a lot of visitors come through and maybe adopting their perfect companion mm-hmm. today. Um, and the you know the cold weather is hard on all of us. So be sure that you're using sound judgment, not leaving your pets out there yes. uh, when it is cold. They need a warm place as well. Make sure you're wiping the salt off their paws so that doesn't cause damage, drying, and things like that. Um, so you want to just be mindful of all the things that are going on that people have salted their sidewalks, and um, you want to just make sure you're wiping that off. And if you choose to salt and things there are some pet-friendly products to consider. And what a great time to have a nice, warm cat for your lap. That's a very good point. Jim, you must be physic or psychic because we got cats for adoption up next. Yeah, that was a segue for you. And who's our first cat for adoption? We'll start with Pretty Addison. Sure. She's one of our Blue-eyed beauties, two years old, a spayed female, a little bit shy, so she's just peeking out of her little hidey hole there. (laughs) She's looking for a warm and wonderful home where she can relax and feel at ease. White nose and and, uh, muzzle with uh, gray on top and just a little patch of gray-black right around the nose there. Uh Uh-huh. Very cute. Um, CapitalHumaneSociety.org if you want to follow along. CapitalHumaneSociety.org, and our first cat up for adoption is Addison. Addison's buddy is? Rena, 
R-I-N-A, a pretty name for a pretty cat. She's a spayed female, about two years old, looking for a warm place to call home. She has really pretty tabby markings, uh, bright eyes, uh, ready to meet a new and wonderful family today. Kind of almost, almost looks like she might have a little bit of Abyssinian in her. I was thinking that, yeah. yeah. Very pretty. Rena, R-I-N-A, beautiful cat. Two cats are better than one. Addison, Rena, and then there's... Next up is Taz, and he's a big cat looking for a fabulous new home. He's also very friendly. Uh, he's about three years old, has white and then tabby markings, um, would like to have a place where there are some hiding spots, but then once he knows he can trust you, he is very affectionate. Look at that look on his face. It's like he is uh -huh. saying, yeah, Tasmanian devil to you. <laughs> uh, three uh, great cats. You always do cats. such a great job of picking out cats for adoption here. And uh, folks, they're open today and tomorrow. Here's Charlene with hours open to see these great cats. We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. Next up is Dogs for Adoption, and who do you want to talk about? We will start with General. He is a very handsome Mastiff mix. Two years old, weighs 88 pounds, so he is a big dog. Uh, very strong, looking for somebody who knows how to properly work with him. Um, we do want him to meet other dogs and kids in the home to make sure he's a good match. Uh, but if you're looking for an intelligent, handsome sidekick, then consider General. This would be a great dog for those uh, weight loss walks twice a day or for somebody perhaps that is a, a jogger. Um, take a look at General, and uh, here's our next dog. Brody, and Brody is a terrier, uh, eight years old, loves to play fetch. So if you have a ball to toss, you have a friend. Mm -hmm. He just loves to chase that ball, and he's so sweet. Uh, looking for a home with people who have time to provide some training, and he too should meet other dogs and kids to make sure he's a good match, but highly intelligent, and is he knows the right family is out there. Brody looks like he's a cool dog, too. He's sort of yeah. grinning at the camera going, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Exactly. I, I like his facial markings. And, uh, so check out the picture of Brody at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. We talked about General Brody, and now there's... Kayla, and she is three years old, a pit bull. A very intelligent dog as well, also strong, looking for somebody who has time to provide her with plenty of playtime. She might make an awesome running partner, uh, maybe not right now with these icy sidewalks, but once things get cleared off, um, it's going to be a lot of fun to have her out and about. And has that uh, incredibly cool markings, that sort of uh, black eye patch uh, over one eye, and uh Good-looking dog. Kayla might be the dog for you. General Brody and Kayla. And uh, hours open, Charlene, today and tomorrow. Please visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. We are open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530. Okay, and uh, any activities going on in the near future there? 
Uh, we do have a dine-in event, so I just need to click on when that is. Um, also on our website, we have a news and events link. Um, so the Dine to Donate event is Wednesday, February 19th, and that's going to be at both Don and Millie's locations. Cool. Okay, more information on the dining event as well as the cats and dogs for adoption at capitalhumanesociety.org. Charlene, thanks for all the good work. Thank you for all you do. Have a great day. Charlene and friends of the Capital Humane Society make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn, and next up we've got Brent Rains. Brent is the editor of a really uh, interesting online magazine that's called Alternate Perceptions. And you can subscribe free at apmagazine.info. And ladies and gentlemen, here's Brent Rains. Hey, how's it going, Scott? It's going great, Brent. Uh, we, we're talking to you, I believe, in Tennessee, correct? Right, right. Waynesboro, Tennessee, almost into Alabama. Have you guys, do you, do you ever get uh, snow down there? Um, not usually all that much, but occasionally we get hit with some. But uh, down here, it's so rare that uh, if we get an inch or two, they close the schools, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of mountain roads, too. I could see why. So, yeah, we get the snow, and you probably get some rain then, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, usually some very cold rain. And... Uh, yeah, right now I think it's uh, about 40 degrees out, cloudy. Uh, but uh, as long as you get a nice warm house to get into, you're all set. Uh, Brent, you've uh, authored recently a book on John Keel, and you've been doing a lot of uh, radio show interviews. Um, How is that going? Have you tired yet talking about your new book? Yeah, sometimes I feel like I'm kind of uh, repeating myself over and over, but uh, it's going going pretty well. Um, I just talked with Paul Eno over in Rhode Island there. Um, he's uh, got quite a radio audience like yourself over there in New England. And uh, he's going to have me on in April, so I get to talk some more. And uh, uh, I am also uh, was asked for some quotes for a, an article coming out in uh, Popular Mechanics I'll be uh, on John Keel. So that'll be pretty interesting, I think. Oh, that'll reach him. Yeah, it won't be just me being interviewed. It'll be various people, but I'll, I'll get some comments and some exposure there, too. You know, I can I can tick off on my hand a number of people that are contemporaries right now that I can think of were influenced by John Keel. Um, so he's been a, um, including yourself and, and me, of course, but he's been uh, influential for a lot of folks. Um, uh, in yeah, the, in um, the I, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I know people uh, that I've been in touch with, you know, of course, in England, there's quite a few, and uh, uh, Switz, you know, Switzerland and uh, uh, Australia, Brazil, Germany. I mean, uh, you know, he was writing in articles for Flying Sauce Review out of London, England, which reached a, a global audience, and uh, uh, that was how he originally, I think, uh, reached so many people with mm-hmm. Uh, got a lot of exposure back in back in the late '60s, early '70s, and uh, it sparked a lot of uh, alternative interest in a lot of the people in the UFO field. Began to look at things like the the paranormal elements, and uh, you know, with, with an interview that Tim Beckley did in the '70s with Keel, he said, "Looks like you 
you made your point about the paranormal. You confirmed it. And, and uh, Keel just kind of gave one of these replies. Well, it's kind of like opening Pandora's box. It just made it all more complicated. But yes, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell, <laughs> tell the listeners what they can expect when they look at the January edition of um, Alternate Perceptions magazine. What's in store for it? Well, um, we've got uh, we've got an interview with uh, Claudia Cunningham, who Mr. UFO Tim Beckley calls uh, the MIB lady, and she has some very incredible stories that she shares with us from that area of uh, Albany, New York, where she lives. She's lived there all her life, and um, she got interested in uh, some of this very strange MIB stuff when. Uh, a friend of hers went to a a large cemetery there in Albany, and uh, this was back in May of 2010, and uh, she had an MIB-type encounter. <clears throat> really? Uh, she was she was just there at the cemetery. And this is also where Charles Fort happens to be buried, wouldn't you know? <laughs> this is the father of 14, Fatina. And uh, anyway, she suddenly finds this big black car with tinted windows pulled up behind her. And so she's getting ready to move on. You know, she's just there kind of looking around and sitting in her car and and uh, taking in the, the scene. And suddenly he pulls away and goes up uh, in this, up over, I think, this hill. And she kind of follows him at that point, uh, see what, what, what this is about. And uh, there's a, a fence and no sign of the car. So she decides, well, she's going to leave. And as she goes toward, uh, starts to leave, there's the car with this guy, dressed in dark suit, black glasses, dark glasses, uh, outside his car looking at her. <laughs> and she's really freaked at this point, says he looks like he's mafia or something. So she starts to pull away, and uh, she's going to leave the cemetery. And, and uh, she looks back in the rearview mirror, and it's just like two seconds later, and uh, gone. And... Uh, so this is when um, when Claudia decided to start investigating the cemetery and found there were a lot, a lot of reports of uh, strange haunting activity, events, apparitions, and things that people had experienced there. And uh, I'm trying to arrange now. She's giving me the lady's uh, name and phone number, but I'm letting her try to reach out to her first so I can maybe talk with this woman and her experience. And this is very close to uh, a place that had a lot of... Uh, intense UFO activity and uh, some MIB activity back in uh, late 1960s in Scotia, uh, up in the Schenectady area. Uh, This was, you know, uh, an article that was in the Flying Saucer Review again, uh, a special issue called Beyond Condon in uh, June of 1969, and an article by Jennifer Stevens who had a UFO group at the time, and they were doing sky watching and, and taking calls from people in the area. And uh, they had a, a very suspicious case of where these boys had seen uh, a strange light. And then later that night, it was it was in the winter, and uh, this boy's body had been found where it looked like he had been dragged, you know. Uh, no, I'm sorry to hear that. They found his body and frozen in ice, and uh, it looked very suspicious. They, they, after the police had done their investigation, they went out and looked, and, and they really felt like the 
this UFO activity might have been involved in this boy's death. It looked like something from above had kind of dragged him along. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think they found a, a zipper from his winter jacket that was quite a distance from his body. And uh, so anyway, this is, uh, we try to talk about all this, this stuff. And, and Jennifer's husband, who uh, was involved in these investigations, was in Schenectady at a, at a little store having a little, uh, at that time they had a food bar, and he was having something to, to eat. And this uh, MIB type guy came in and sat beside him and struck up a conversation about uh you know, people seeing strange things in the sky down by the river. And uh, then, you know, he tried to draw the guy out, and the guy just said, uh, you know, you need to, people need to be careful of what they get into. And Ooh. then he just got up and walked away. And about two months later, um, and Keel writes about this in the Mothman Prophecies, that he, he passed away uh, very suddenly. And... Uh, he said that uh, he wrote that Jennifer Stevens had said that her husband, uh, you know, this was related, didn't didn't spell it out. She soon afterwards she got out of the field. So uh, Claudia is currently trying to dig through newspaper articles and what information, whatever information she can get to to kind of maybe find out more about those events from years ago. But it seems to be a pretty active area, uh, UFOs, paranormal, and all that. And, we just did another interview with her, which is going to be in the uh, upcoming February issue, where she's telling us about local Bigfoot and other cryptid-type activity. <clears throat> so, you know, it's a lot of interesting uh, stories there. I'm going to suggest that my friend in Omaha contact you about his cemetery Men in Black experience. Oh, wow. There may be some, uh, some patterns here. That would... Uh, I'd appreciate that. Sounds interesting. I'm just making myself and, here a note here to to have him do that here. Yeah, they were um, they were in a um, driveway of, of their house. Um, he and his wife and her retired uh, father, uh, deputy county sheriff, retired, and uh, they were just enjoying the the summer evening. And they saw this bright light that came down across the valley in Omaha, and it appeared to land in an area that they knew there was a fairly large cemetery. And the next day, they uh, got up and got in the car and drove over there and entered the cemetery. It's broad daylight, and drove through there and parked and got out and walked around and tried to see if there was any evidence of this meteorite the bolide, uh, the whatever it was that was very bright that, that came down in that area, they found an area that some grass had been partially swirled and kind of flattened. And all of a sudden, he said um, he got the sense that there was somebody behind him. And he turned around and looked. And here were, I believe it was two guys that were dressed in black suits, you know, white shirts, black ties. Um and uh, one of the guys was about 10 to 15 feet away. Uh, none of the, the folks heard them walk up. He saw parked behind his car was a um, older car, black, 
that was parked on the on the gravel. Nobody heard the car pull up. Nobody heard the doors open or close. And this this uh, gentleman that looked like a man in black, an MIB, in kind of a monotone, said, uh, "What are you doing? Or what are you doing? What are you doing here?" And so uh, my friend said, "Well, we just you know we saw this light that came down, and last night we're over here kind of looking around and." trying to find if we could find out if, you know, where it came down. And uh, this MIB character said, um, you shouldn't be here. You need to leave now. And they got a sense that they should really do this. And this friend's wife's father, the retired deputy county sheriff, he wouldn't take any guff from anybody, but meekly they all acquiesced and got in the car and drove away. And when they got home, they sort of came to and they got a little bit irate over the fact that they were just ordered out of a cemetery. So my friend called one of the people on the cemetery board and uh, asked about their policy, explained the the situation, and the man said, uh, I'm sorry that you were ordered out of the cemetery we would never do that in broad daylight to anybody. We want this to be a place of rest and uh, prayer and meditation and people visiting their loved ones. And can you describe these guys? And so my friend did, and he said, you know, we don't employ anybody like that. And I can't imagine why they did that. I'm so sorry that you had that experience. So uh, he will hopefully pass that along in better detail than I just did. But I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is, and and with the uh, this story from New York, um, uh, Keel mentions also that there were two drawings of this MIB person, and and the original that they had uh, was somebody broke into their home, and uh, the only thing they seemed interested in was stealing that uh, that drawing. <laughs> And, you know, and then, um, but they had sent a copy to Keel, and, and that was the one that was used in the article in 1969 in Flying Saucer Review. Mm-hmm. And Keel claimed in the Mothman Prophecies that uh, a number of the people he would interview in, in West Virginia would say, yeah, that, that guy in that image is a dead ringer for the guy that, you know, confronted us. Isn't that in interesting? Uh, MIB, <laughs> Men in Black. Um, we had a, a couple of movies that popularized that. What's your take, uh, Brent? Um, any conjecture on your part about the Men in Black? Well, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, the the kind of stories that we're talking about, these graveyard type stories, they're uh, you know a lot of people think MIB, you know, MIB are being sort of like uh, government agents, but some of these reports, on the other hand, suggest that they're you know, a little more complex and they may be intimately intermixed with the phenomena itself. Mm-hmm. And that's the area that Keel was interested. He was, you know, he interested in, he knew that he couldn't, uh, you know, catch up with the little green men and the flying saucers, but maybe eventually he could, you know, catch one of these uh, MIB types on the, uh, coming out of somebody's home or uh, on the road somewhere, well, he which he can- never did. I was just going to say. Told us that he did. <laughs> yeah, did did he have any Men in Black experiences? I mean, there was the 
the story, remember, about the guy that was going through, was it Mount Pleasant, um, that was uh, identifying himself as John Keel, and it wasn't? Right. He claimed that he uh, got a call one night, was told to go to uh, Mount Misery on Long Island, and uh, when he did, he confronted one of these black cars with two Oriental-type guys and tinted windows, but he could make out these two Oriental guys inside, and uh, he started to get out of his car to go rap on their window, and they started to pull off. So he got back in his car and followed them around down these country roads there. Eventually, they went around a corner, and what he wrote uh, was, you know, in one of his articles, or maybe more than one, but... Uh, the one I read, uh, he went around the corner, and it was a dead end, and no sign of the <laughs> the black car and the men. And so he theorized that what, what happened was is they simply wanted to uh, confirm to him that these things were real. Yeah, interesting and, uh, story. Brad Steiger met Keel early on, and as he was in the area working on a book and had met with Ivan Sanderson, and... Ivan Sanderson and Keel were good friends, and Ivan Sanderson said, "Well, you're in, you know, New York. You need to go ahead and, uh, you know, get with John Keel." So he did, and Keel talked a lot about the MIB and uh, was taking it very seriously at the time, and and then told Brad Steiger uh, uh, a very bizarre story of how Keel said that uh, they had appeared in his apartment. They just walked right straight through a solid door, and. Uh, and uh, he said at one point they uh, asked him if they wanted proof that they were alien. He said something like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so they uh, pulled out a big gallon jug of Lysol, and they all started drinking it. Oh, jeez. God. Oh. And, you know, and then I guess they were gone. You know, it's, <laughs> it's very spooky stuff. Uh-huh. Brent, I'm sorry. I see that we're out of time here, but I'm going to ask that people go to apmagazine.info and they can subscribe to your uh, excellent uh, newsletter and uh, it's always a great pleasure sir to, to talk with you well same here Scott appreciate it very much okay keep on keeping on my friend alright you too take care we'll take the bottom of your break that was Brent Rains with What is Reality and we'll be back with our main guest Heather Ashamara, and her book is The Warrior Heart Practice. I'm Scott Colborn. You're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's great to have you with us on this um, overcast Saturday morning. Uh, how are you folks doing? Hopefully you're doing well. Does it seem like January is almost over? Wow, it's gone quickly. Almost one-twelfth of the year. I think they've also confirmed it, too, that as you get older, time speeds up. And it sure, at times, feels that way to me. I'm pleased to welcome to the broadcast a first-time guest, Heather Ash Amara. And she's the author of The Warrior Heart Practice, a simple process to transform confusion into clarity and pain into peace. Um, here's a quote from Jacob Nordby. This is a restorative book full of the sort of wisdom and honesty 
that transforms life. Heather Ash Amara shares her own story in a way that gives her the credibility as a teacher and reveals how her own extraordinary quest for healing and joy is universal. We all want what she has offered here with her trademark humility and sense of humor. She's the author of a number of books, including the Warrior <clears throat> Goddess Training Series. Heather Ashamara brings an open-hearted, inclusive worldview to her writings and teachings, which are a rich blend of Toltec wisdom, European shamanism, Buddhism, and Native American ceremony. And we'll talk about her website a number of times during the broadcast, heatherashamara.com. Let's welcome Heather Ash to the broadcast. And good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great, Jim. I'm in Cancun right now, so. I'll be darned. It's good. I'll be darned. <laughs> uh, is that a business pleasure combination both? It's a it's pleasure a little bit of business. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, yeah. A younger guy, myself, Scott Colborn. We had a circle of friends that suddenly we all discovered the books by Carlos Castaneda. Uh, and we went through them and we read them sometimes two or three times. We had uh, discussions, late night conversations. Um, several of my friends tried to uh, adopt or to instigate some of the practices that they read about in the books, and uh, very, very impressed. Does it, does it make a difference, ultimately, if the stories that Carlos wrote about were absolutely real or imaginary? Mm. Scott, I don't think it does. I do believe they were real experiences. And yet that's been a big debate. Was it real? Was it not real? Mm -hmm. it, those books had such a huge impact on the psyche of America and the world. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many people I meet that say, I started my spiritual path or I started opening my perception by reading Carlos Castaneda, by learning about Don Juan's teachings. Mm -hmm. And so I think whether he pulled the information from someplace himself or had a physical teacher, that information needed to come into the world. Mm -hmm. Re remarkable books. Um, the teacher of Carlos Castaneda was Don Juan, a uh, Yaqui Indian. And if I remember correctly, was his teacher or a confederate, was it Don Gennaro? He worked with Don Gennaro. What was the name of his teacher? I forget. There is one other person back whose name I'm, mm. I don't have right now, but Don Gennaro and he definitely worked together. He was one of his mentors for sure. So tell me about, in a nutshell, uh, what you got from those books and perhaps as a opening to talking about your work here. Yeah, I first came across those books when I was in college. So my second year of college, I took a course called Altered States of Consciousness with Charles Tart. Mm. And that was one of the books that was recommended. Yeah, I was really blessed. I had no wow. idea about that world, really. Um, and so 
I remember when I read them feeling like this portal had opened and that there was a lot of information I did not understand. And there was a recognition that there was really important wisdom that was being brought forward through the teachings. And that uh, was perhaps one of the instigators for your, your own evolvement then. Can you tell us a little bit about your story, Heather Ash? Yeah, I was raised in Southeast Asia, so had a very unusual upbringing in that we traveled around the world every year. We lived in different countries. We moved pretty much every two years. And when I first came to the United States to go to college, I felt this sense of disconnection, and mm-hmm. I felt the people around me were disconnected. Mm-hmm. But I didn't even have language for it. I just knew something didn't feel right. And I got into politics really big for a couple of years, and realized that's not what I was looking for. And then I started looking at a lot of different spiritual traditions. So I had read Carlos Castillo at that point, but I didn't, it didn't really connect. It had opened me, but I didn't think I'm going to go find a a Toltec teacher at all. I just think the seed was planted then. Mm -hmm. But I went and started studying European shamanism and looking at my my history and my ancestors and wondering what they were up to. And so I started learning about the cycles and the seasons and, and meditation through, through visualization, which is a really big part of European shamanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I had a dream. And in that dream, I had a very clear vision that I was going to meet a man that was going to change my life. And that man ended up being Don Miguel Ruiz. And the next week, somebody came into my office and said, oh, my God, you have to meet this man. And my whole body went, I am not ready for this because I knew that my life was about to drastically shift. So it took me about a year. And I was blessed to start sitting with Miguel in 1994 and learning the Toltec wisdom through that lineage. So there's different lineages of Toltec wisdom. Don Juan held one lineage, Don Miguel holds another. And and really dive deep for many years working with Miguel. You mentioned that term Toltec. Tell us about what that means. The Toltec were a group of people that came together in South and Central Mexico to study perception. They were really curious about how we as humans create our reality. And they believe that we're dreaming all the time. It's not just nighttime dreaming, that we're actually dreaming while we're awake as well. And that if we learn how to be in touch with our energy, with the agreements that we make, which are also energy, and start to shift our perception that we can open up a lot of different realities for ourselves. The word Toltec means artist of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And I love that. That really talks deeply about that the, our work is about learning how to capture our own attention and choose where we're going to direct it. And through doing that, we help create reality. And, um, you adopted the material from Don Miguel Ruiz's book, The Four Agreements. And what did that lead you to? How did, how did that change you? You know, I studied with Miguel for so long, and the, the Four Agreements were embedded from the beginning of my training with him. And when the book came out, we were all really excited because we're like, oh my gosh, it's in writing now. This is so cool. 
And I then taught the four agreements for like 15 years, probably really steadily. And so those four, it's really a code of life. So the Toltec don't consider it themselves. It's a religion. It's really a practical way to live your life. And that's one of the things that I really received from working with Miguel, working with the four agreements is that it's important for us to take the esoteric and to bring it down to how do we make it practical. And when we make it practical, that allows us to open up our perception and to be able to have different experiences that we might normally have. So I feel like it's this, this beautiful way of bringing ourselves into the world so that we can open up to other worlds. Uh, before enlightenment, uh, one chops wood and carry wa- carries water. After enlightenment, <laughs> one chops wood and carries water. When you have the esoteric made available and you immerse yourself into that, you still got to dress yourself. You got to get up and be in relationship. You got to go out in the world and, you know, go to the grocery store and get your stuff. And, and uh, so... Have you at times felt like you've got um, feet in two different places? And is that a yes. good is that a good thing? I think it is a good thing. It's something. It's sometimes challenging. I, mean, I was talking to a friend today that you know I I have a, a really incredible team that works with me. There's a lot of things that I do in the world which I love, and there's also a part of me that's like I just want to walk away from everything and go disappear into the jungle for a couple of years. Mm. And so balancing that need in, for, in my world for being immersed in nature, for being the, the fast pace of the world with really loving what I do of, of being in the world and meeting a lot of people and connecting and bringing these teachings forward. And so I do often find that place of balancing both and, and really, I feel like our work is to learn how to bring both present. So how can I hold the stillness and that connection to nature and that connection to the divine, we can say, as I'm doing the mundane. The old Chinese curse uh, has come to mind that, you know, may you live in an interesting time. And we certainly have that interesting time right now with so much uh, being clambered in the headlines and the, you know, the vibe of the, of the whole country, at least the U.S. here, is, you know, a lot different. Um, is this a good time to explore the esoteric, or if you'll allow me to, the spiritual side of one's existence? I think it's a really important time as things get more chaotic in the world around us. And, you know, the truth is there's always been a lot of chaos in the world. Mm -hmm. However, now we're learning about it instantaneously. And so we're being bombarded by so many pieces of information that we don't have the capacity to integrate. And because of that, many people are feeling overwhelmed, confused, scared, unsure about the future unsure about what they should be doing and, and really fragmented in a lot of ways. And because of that, we have the opportunity now to realize 
that staying plugged into the matrix of the news or the, the busyness that we've gotten into our lives isn't going to lead to a good place. If we turn towards ourselves and really learn how do I stay centered inside of myself regardless of what's happening? How do I open up my dreaming so I can get information and guidance? How do I clear out enough of my thinking and my busyness so I can allow my intuitive capacities to come through? Because I really believe we both need more humans that are centered inside themselves. And also that we also need to learn how to engage in the world we're in now. And we can best do that by getting quiet and letting the, our own wisdom or the wisdom of spirit, we can say, arise within us. While driving around in a truck hauling an Airstream camper back and forth from New Mexico to New York, Living Life, Heather Ashamara wrote a marvelous book. That's Don Miguel Ruiz, the author of The Four Agreements, The Mastery of Self, The Five Levels of Attachment. Yeah. You hauled an Airstream camper and drove back and forth. <laughs> have an alternative lifestyle. So I live part-time on the road and I have an Airstream that I sometimes spend time up in upstate New York, sometimes in New Mexico. I'm based out in New Mexico, sometimes in California. And I really love the fluidity that comes with living on the road mm -hmm. and how it allows me to really stay creative and stay present with what's happening. Now, on the road, you will meet the good the bad, and the ugly. Yes, it is all there for sure. Heather, before the top of the hour break, um, let's talk about there are four salient points that your book makes in terms of helping us to integrate who we really are. And the first is feeling. Can you talk to us a little bit before the break about that? Yeah, well, what I've found is that helping people to come back into a relationship with their heart and with their intuition and wisdom and creativity starts by being in a new relationship with our emotional body. Mm -hmm. So learning to heal the emotional body, learning to just be present with the emotional body. So that's where we start in this practice is to ask ourselves, what am I feeling separate from the story? which is something that we all need to learn how to do. Most of us need to learn how to do. So how to feel my feelings, how to experience what's happening in my body without telling myself a story about it. And so give us an example of, of a storyline and then perhaps some, some threads or feelings that may emerge from that. Yeah, example, if you were a kid and you were singing in the car when you were young and you were really excited and your parents, when your parents said, stop singing right now, you might make up a story of, I have a bad voice, my mom doesn't like to hear me sing, mm -hmm. and you might then weave that and continue to build that story of, like, I shouldn't speak out, I'll get in trouble if I use my voice, people are going to think you're stupid. And so all of these emotions come up, and it can happen in a lot of different situations. And so learning how to separate out what am I feeling right now versus what is my mind telling me is the beginning of healing that split so that we can be more present with what we're telling ourselves 
that isn't true in this mm-hmm. moment. It's something mm-hmm. we may have taken on as a younger person. Uh, there was a prominent Lincoln, Nebraska dentist who was an early proponent of using hypnosis in dentistry for pain reduction and the ease of the, the whole experience. Uh, and he, uh, in a conversation, related that he experienced just exactly what you were talking about uh, with his one of his daughters, that when she was in grade school, she came to him with a math problem and said, Daddy, can you help me? And he slipped. I mean, he fell flat on his face. He admits this. Mm-hmm. He's, he looked at the problem, looked at her, and he said something like, um, wow, you must be dumb at, at math. And this wonderful little girl just heard the guy that was the, the fount of wisdom in her life tell her that she, she may be dumb at math. And so she developed and exhibited that straight A's and everything else, really a bright, bright woman. And later through uh, therapy, this, this came out, if you want to call it a blockage or something that was stored, as you say, a feeling deep within her core. Uh, Patty Conklin uh, is a friend of mine. Patty talks about these feelings being stored in our very tissues. There's a memory that's stored of some of these early experiences. Is that is that what you would surmise? Or? Absolutely. I think that's really true. And a lot of times we don't rec- we don't connect it to the story, or we re- we think the story is true, so we don't even realize it's a story. Mm-hmm. So she deeply believed in her being. I'm not good at math, mm-hmm. and of course, that manifested that. I had a similar experience as a kid, and and so to start to unravel it because it really gets tangled together when we are able to go into our body and let the tissue have the experience and then release it incredible things can happen. But if we keep telling ourselves the story, what we're doing is we're, ha- we're telling ourselves the story, we're feeling it in the body, the body just holds it. Mm-hmm. And so we have to separate the story out so that the body can process and move the energy. Because emotions are just energy. I remember a, uh, a if you will, a picture, a drawing that was really striking. Uh, it was a person holding up a set of bars in front of their face and looking out through these bars. And the caption was, we're not a prisoner of the world. We're a prisoner of the way that we view the world. Mm-hmm. And part of your work, it strikes me, Heather Rash, is to help people see that... Um, those bars perhaps are imaginary and that there is uh, freedom and grace and dynamic living seen around or through those. Yeah, it's so true, Scott. I, I feel like I just want to say to everyone, just back up a little bit. <laughs> like if you take three <laughs> steps back, the view is completely different. And so often we have these stories that are just like those bars and we can't see them and we don't realize how limited we are. And it's really joyful to help people get free on the inside. You know, what I always say is that we have a lot of freedom, especially in America, we have a lot of freedom to have whatever job we want and to vote and to, 
you know, partner with who we want to, to move where we want to go. And yet a lot of us don't have the same inner freedom. We're still living from our parents' beliefs, our ancestors' beliefs, what we grew up in, what we call the dream of the planet, which is often based in fear and scarcity. And so to step out of that takes an act of courage, really. And the joy on the other side is immense. Uh, It's truly, as she said, it's joyful, it's remarkable when you see people start to shift when they when they have that realization i was in a uh, dale carnegie human relations class back in the 1970s and um part of the training was to help people break through some of their phobias or fears and we had in the class of maybe 30 people we had several people that if you asked them to stand up and talk extra extra uh off the top of their head about elephants, tigers, and bears, they would their knees would shake, they would get sweaty, their yes. hearts would race. And through the eight-week class, uh, I saw a transformation take place in these very people that you'd have to drag them to do this, begin to actually argue, saying, look, you got a chance to do this last week, now it's my turn. <laughs> and nice. They, they found that when they did that, there was uh, acceptance, um, maybe, maybe even love. Is, you know, before we take the break, is that a big thing that we're all looking for, is, is love? Yeah, I really believe we're looking to be seen. We're looking to be able to really meet and see other people. And that, for me, is love. We're looking for that place of being met in an unconditional way. Mm -hmm. That is such a deep yearning and such a great healing. Our guest is Heather Ash Amara, and uh, her website is her name. That's Heather Ash Amara, A-M-A-R-A, dot com. And this book just got released January 7th. Congratulations. Thank you. It's very exciting. Oh, it is. The Warrior Heart Practice, a simple process to transform confusion into clarity and pain into peace. When we come back from the top of the hour break, tell me about the definition as you see it of a warrior. Okay, I hope you folks out there are enjoying the broadcast. Stay tuned, we've got a lot more conversation. We'll be right back after this. I'm Scott Colborn, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Next week's guest is Amit Goswami, and his brand new book will be talking about quantum spirituality. We're speaking this, this morning with first-time guest Heather Ash Amara. Her website is the first and last name, heatherashamara.com. And this brand new book that just got released is The Warrior Heart Practice. A simple process to transform confusion into clarity and pain into peace. Um, Heather Ash, uh, tell us about how you see this word or the connotation of warrior. What does that mean to you? Warrior energy is our focus, our clarity. It's our 100% commitment to whatever our path is. And when we're in that warrior energy, we're disciplined, we're incredibly patient, 
and we're connected to our wisdom. So it's not somebody armed that's going around um, in skirmishes and things. Right. That's a, and we can say a newer version of warrior. In Mm -hmm. a lot of spiritual traditions, this idea of warrior was somebody who was not at battle with the world outside of them, but was at battle for their own attention. They were learning how to bring their attention inward and cultivate these qualities so that they could be really deeply in service to their community. Mm-hmm. Uh, how we experience the world is um, through feeling. I can't imagine if we were not able to have that sense, how that would limit um, our perception of the world, the way that we function in the world. It's so important, isn't it? It is. It's incredibly important. And unfortunately, we don't often know how to be in relationships with our, in relationship with our emotional body. Often we either repress the old emotions that we didn't know how to process, or we end up cycling the emotions. You're right. It's one of the most vital ways that we engage with the world. And when our feeling body gets I don't want to say contaminated. That's not the right word. The image that I've had is if you have an engine and the engine's gotten really gunked up because it's been used a lot or because it hasn't been used mm-hmm. a lot, that in order to clean the engine, you take the pieces apart, you clean all the pieces and you put it back together. Mm-hmm. And that that's really what I feel like we're learning how to do with our emotional body and our stories is separate things out, clean up the different pieces, put them back together again. And then our emotional body, that feeling sense becomes incredibly honed that we know when something's off inside of us, that we're connected to our intuition, that we're wide open and able to take in so much more guidance from ourselves and from the world around us. From when we were little boys and little girls, um, if somebody around us that was in a position of love, respect, power, or authority described to us a picture or version of ourselves, uh, we took that in as being truth. Uh, No matter if that description was entirely accurate, partially accurate, or totally false. And it's a belief of many of us that, that this input the stories that we carry around, we carry that deeply within us, and it pushes lots of the buttons in our subconscious, and we will sometimes have uh, reactions to life experiences that are based clear, clear back on what we heard about ourselves when we were four or five years old. Is that in line with your, with your uh, results, with your life? Yeah, I really, really agree. And what I've seen is almost like 95 plus percent of the time when you're having a big reaction to something in your life, it's not about what you're reacting to. There's something in the past that's triggered it. Mm. And you're living a story. And so many of us are living our lives from the past. 
and having emotional responses to the world that are being driven by our stories. And that's the second aspect of, um, as I understand it, your, your work. We've talked a little bit about feeling the story. And I'm reading, Heather, from the, the back cover of your gorgeous book, a story, bear witness to the story that you are telling yourself, learning in, excuse me, leaning in to listen to your own fears and doubts without censoring them. Exactly. So the, the practice has four chambers and just like the heart, we don't say, I really like my left ventricle. That's my favorite chamber. <laughs> like we know that the, all, the entirety of our heart is incredibly important, that it all works together. It's the same thing with the four chambers of the warrior heart practice. The first chamber is feelings. The second chamber is stories. And we're not saying stories are good or bad or right or wrong. We're just looking at, does this story serve me? And in order to really understand what the story is you're telling yourself, you have to be willing to go in and listen to the thoughts, listen to your inner dialogue, listen to what you're saying without editing it, without trying to make it better, and also to, to delve, to go down the layers. And think about it. We want to be archaeologists when we're working with our stories, when we're working in the story chamber. And if you're an archaeologist, you wouldn't be out someplace and pick up a shard from the surface and go, I found a shard. We're done. You would know that's just the beginning of the process of digging down. And it's the same thing with the story chamber. Once the, you've, you've allowed yourself to have the experience of the emotions that you're having, then you say, okay, so what's the story that I'm telling myself? And how does this is it connected to an older story? Is there any other story that's here? And if you step back and watch your mind and have just a little bit of distance from it, it's surprising what you'll find that you're thinking and what you're believing. Mm -hmm. So we have, uh, as we go through life, we have a life experience that could be very ordinary. And we lay over that some similar experiences that we've had in the past and or what we expect to be results that we've experienced in the past. And that almost begins to color the whole thing. It's, it's almost like part of ourselves is trying to direct the outcome that isn't even here yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I call that disaster mind. We have often we're we have stories from the past that we're trying to avoid recreating, and then we're worrying about the future and trying to avoid the future, and mm -hmm. we create all these incredible stories that are based in disaster, basically avoiding past experiences or not create future experiences that aren't here, just as you're saying. So we're really creative, and if you can go into the story chamber and start to witness your story and just be amazed at how creative you are. Because it's true, we can have a very simple experience, like the experience of the, the like say, mom saying, don't sing right now. You can then take that and make a whole story about it and link it to other experiences. 
And maybe your mom, there's an emergency vehicle kind. She couldn't figure out where it was, so she needed you to be quiet for just a minute. So it was nothing about your voice. It was about what was going on for her. But we take that as now I know reality. My reality is I don't have a good voice. Years ago, I did some some work with some teachers that um, talked about the uh, ability to modify some of these quote-unquote, programs that operate on a subconscious level in our biocomputer. And they emphasize doing something that sounds very simple. You take a piece of paper and write down um, positive statements that you want to experience or you want to become. I am blank. Not that I will be or at some time in the future, but right now, I am brave, strong, courageous, intelligent, uh, able to make good decisions, uh, able to, to give and receive love unconditionally, and I'm able to love myself. And then they said, take this short list of affirmations that are appropriate for each one of us and hold up a small mirror and look into your eyes, the windows of your soul, and say these lines while you're looking into your own eyes. Do you know what I experienced, Heather Ash? I experienced not only myself, but in many of my contemporaries, how difficult that was initially to do. It was like trying to climb a vertical rock face with very little handholds. And we had all of us, let me just be specific. I had, <laughs> to own this, I had so much self-talk going on. Um, so these teachers said, yeah, okay, so become an actor. And when you do this, this is your script, this is, these are your lines, and deliver these into the mirror, looking into your eyes, as if you're an actor or actress. You know, the world's best actor or actress may have just been told off stage that their car has been repossessed for non-payment, that this is the final run of their, of their, um, of their role, uh, that their partner has decided to leave them, and that their late dinner date has just canceled. All that could have happened right off the stage, and yet they come out and they give such a performance. Heather Ash, have you found yourself in that seat in the audience where you forget they're acting, and suddenly, it's, it could be a good movie or a theater, that you're right there. You, I mean, you're in that story. You're in that matrix. This is what they wanted you to experience, to actually go into that. Have you experienced that yourself? Does that sound like a good practice? You know, it's such a beautiful practice. Yes, absolutely. And you know, one of the first practices that I have people do is just look in the mirror mm-hmm. without words is incredible because we never really make eye contact with ourselves. And if we do, we're judging ourselves. We're looking at what to learn how to just simply look at yourself without the dialogue is mm-hmm. incredible. And I love that idea of the, of the acting. And I've definitely had that experience of, um, now, one time I can think about, I shut my finger in a car door Ooh, and I broke the nail bed. So it was an incredible pain. I didn't realize how bad I had hurt myself and I had to go teach. 
And it was one of the best classes I ever gave. <laughs> I was in the most pain I've ever been in, probably. I mean, some of the most pain. It was really excruciating. And there was just this place of just be with the people, not with the pain. And it really taught me that where we put our attention is so powerful. Because mm-hmm. I could have put all my attention into I'm hurt. I have to, you know, like this, this is terrible and really made the pain way, way, way worse. Or I could put my attention on what do these people need? How do I be in service? How do I open the channel? And we have that choice all the time. We just don't realize we have the choice because we think the role that we're in is the only role there is. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Folks, by embodying doing the best we can to be who we really are, our true selves. You guys and gals listening want to have a way to change the world? That's the way right there. Because when we can do that, my, my simplistic description is that, that there is, and this is not ego-based, there's a, an energy field that is created that when we interact with other people on subtle levels, they experience that. And it's a very positive life affirming experience. I had Heather Ash, uh, a meditation retreat I went to years ago in Montana. And at the end of this retreat, we converged on the Bozeman Montana airport to fly out of there just finding out they'd had this national airline strike and everything was backed up and the poor people behind the counters, they were the focal point of all the, the consumer rage over their flights being shifted and canceled and modified. And these poor folks, the guy that we dealt with, um, he had um, deer in the headlights eyes, He was grinding his jaw. He had big sweat stains under his armpits. His tie was askew. His shirt was rumpled. And one of my friends walked up and said, I've got tickets uh, for tomorrow, but is there any way that I could fly out today? And he just blew up and he said, lady, where you been? (laughs) She didn't say, well, I've been in a meditation retreat. Uh, you know, it's a national airline strike. Nothing's been flying for a whole week here. And he takes your ticket and he stomps off and goes over to terminal. So we could have all turned around and said, boy, this guy's acting like a jerk, blah, 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 blah. We could have got into that story. Um, What we did is, and none of us signaled the others. We all just kicked into this. We breathed in, I am, and we breathed out peace. And we just, we just focused on that. Okay? <clears throat> so the guy, the guy came back in a couple of minutes, and he appeared to look different. He was no longer grinding his jaw. His shoulders had come down a couple inches. He looked to be more relaxed, more into who he was. And he said to my friend, I was able to change your ticket. 
you can fly out later today. Here's your here's your flight. She had her checkbook <laughs> open and she said, you mentioned there was going to be a, a surcharge. What is the total of that? And he waved her away and said, there's no charge, no problem. We took care of it. Have a nice day. So we got our <laughs> tickets processed and we walked away and we said, what just happened there? Now, I'm trying to accurately describe what we all experienced. You folks also, many of you listening, have had the same experience when you've been authentic and fully into yourselves, your being. You've experienced that. You've seen what happens around you. Is, would this be another benefit, Heather Ash, of, of your practice? Absolutely. What you're describing is when you step into the next two chambers, which is the truth chamber and mm -hmm. the intent chamber, what happens is you connect with your own spaciousness. You connect. You all set intent. I am peace. Your intent was peace. And because of that, it affects everything around you. And so with the warrior heart practice, you're going from story to truth. And in that situation, the truth was, he just stomped off, period. And there's no, you could you could make a whole story of like, this is unfair, and why did he get so upset with us, and mm -hmm. what's going on? But the truth was, he just stomped off, period. And then you all said, and I love that you did it spontaneously, because you were in that, that field from the workshop, peace, I am peace, holding that. That's intent. Intent changes everything. When you're connected with your intent, and I, when, I was, when I work with people with the practice, I say pick one word as your intent. And then what you're going to do is take that intent and go back to the truth, whatever truth you can see, and then go back into the story and, and revision the story. How else can you see the story? And even just holding your intent and showing up in the truth, which is we're here now, let's see what happens, then that intent affects everything around you. People feel it. It's, it, it it's as if, reality around you. I agree. It's, it's as if, Heather Ash, um, there are unlimited possibilities. And when we allow ourselves into that context or realm, truly magical things can happen. So true. What well, may be the miraculous may be the uh, the ordinary, the uh, the authentic life experience. Yeah, um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that all challenges go away. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't get on the flight. You know, sometimes there is like, and but there's this peace that comes or this grace that comes because you're like, all right, now this is happening. How do I be in relationship with this? It becomes a joy and fun, actually, to be with the challenges of life because you're not taking them as seriously. And, and you're also in touch with if there's feelings that need to be clear, that you clear them. But when you're living from your intent, then everything becomes an adventure. I, I agree. There are no boring Monday mornings. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> 
Um, our guest this morning is Heather Ashamara, and the brand new book that just got published a couple weeks ago is The Warrior Heart Practice, a simple process to transform confusion into clarity and pain into peace. If you'll stay tuned, we're going to be right back with more conversation with our first-time guest, Heather Ashamara. It's Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, and it's great to have you folks with us. Uh, we started broadcast in October of 1984, and we are the world's longest-running paranormal talk radio program. It gives Jim and I a place to go on Saturday mornings, coffee to drink, and really interesting folks to chat with. Our special guest this morning is Heather Ash Amara, and she's the author of a brand new book that just got published, I believe, January 7th of this year. The title is The Warrior Heart Practice, a simple process to transform confusion into clarity and pain into peace. Uh, Heather Ash, do you, do you have a family that you've discussed your work with? Uh, have you had any feedback from your family members? <laughs> yes. So my sister is my business manager, and my mom travels with me quite a bit. And oh, wonderful. I was really inspired by my mom. Yeah, my, I had amazing parents. My, my father has crossed, but... They've been incredibly supportive of my path, and um, yeah, I mean they they know they had to raise unusual daughters when they travel. We traveled all over the place as kids, so. I love the picture I saw on your website of I think you and your sister seated uh, in front of a big temple. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I just I tried to imagine that time period and and what you're experiencing there. Wow. Hey, could you could you relate yes. the story of walking down a street in, I believe it was New Delhi, and seeing yeah. this uh, this young East Indian uh, woman approaching you? Could you could you relate that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was seven years old, and I remember where my mind was. I was holding my dad's hand, and I was looking at my white shoes because I was worried my shoes were going to get dirty. And I looked up, and there was a, a girl about seven years old walking towards me, so about the same age. She was dressed in rags. She had bare feet. Her hair was really messy, gnarly. And as we walked towards each other, our eyes connected. And in that moment, everything else fell away. There was this incredible silence that happened, and I felt pure love. And I could see she felt pure love. And there was this, you know, maybe five second moment Mm -hmm. where everything else stopped. And I realized the physical form that I have, that she had, like what looks different is identical. Like there's so much connection between humans and life. I felt also connected to nature and then she passed. And of course I never saw her again, but my life was really different after that. And I realized as an adult, that's what I was seeking was that, knowing of how connected we all are. That is an important point to make because we get caught up in all the status stuff and somebody that has great wealth and flashy clothes and lots of bling 
and um, a cool car uh, and a um, vicarious sort of life that we wish we were living, uh, they get up and they put their pants on the same way we do. They tie their (laughs) shoes the same way we do. And they have a lot of the same stuff they experience. My friend Gary Morris uh, was a psychotherapist, and Heather Ashe went down to Peru and was in one of the cities. He'd taken a a bus from his hotel to one of the nearby ruins, and he was expressly told to be back at this collection point to take the bus back to the hotel. Very, very important. Uh, and so he got too involved in the investigation of the ruins and walking and in just an amazing place. And he came back to the town square and he realized that he had missed the juncture and the bus had already picked people up and left. The light was starting to fade. He was miles away from his hotel. He'd been told to not be out after dark because it could be very dangerous for a tourist. And This man came up and said, I think your bus has left. You can't stay here. It's not safe. Please come home with me. You'll be okay. So Gary said in that moment, he had this experience of, wow, what do I do? Do I I trust this guy? Is this part of this whole thing? All my fears, this is a stranger. He could be taking me off in the jungle to, to kill me. But he looked in the guy's eyes and he, he said, okay. So this man mm. took Gary back to his two-room home. About one-third to one-half was devoted to livestock. He and his family lived in the other half. They were hand-to-mouth poor, but Gary said that spending that night and the next morning with these people, uh, they had this clarity that when you looked in their eyes, they were just these shining diamonds, these beacons, and he wanted what they had. Am, Am I describing something that if we come into a place where we're quite annoying, that's also what we want too, isn't it? I think so, yes. That we're longing for that sense of connection and that sense of really being alive mm-hmm. and, and simplicity. You know, it's interesting because so often we're told you'll be happy if you get the car, the <laughs> apartment, like whatever the external stuff is. I've talked to so many people that have gotten all the external stuff and they're like, I'm not happy. This is not fulfilling me. And they feel really um, like let down because they, I did everything right according to what I was told. But really what we're yearning for is is to be more present in our own lives, to have that sense of connection and aliveness and and beauty of knowing that we're part of a much bigger picture. And I think that indigenous peoples or people that are 
living, you know, in ways that we would think, oh my gosh, they'd be incredibly unhappy. They don't have stuff. Often I learned that living in Asia. I met, so as a young woman, I would meet people and, and realize this person who's living in a shanty cardboard box, basically in the slums of Thailand is happier than I am. Mm-hmm. Why is that? That was my question. Why, what do they have? And what they had was connection. So that that story, that anecdote that you just shared is so important, I think, Heather Ash, for our audience to hear. Because I think that's what we all want. And when we come in the presence of somebody that has that, I think part of our energy part of our being sees that connector and says yeah that's that's me too let me let me out let me come to the forefront uh, I'm here recognize me validate me you know become me mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah your so book outlines true. a number of, of steps a map and a method um, what inspires you with your practice? We've talked about your relationship with um, at least one of your teachers. Is it the fact that, that you can have a very positive influence on people and then you can see and they can see the fruits of this practice in their own lives? Absolutely. No, I was, I feel like I was drafted into teaching. I was really, really shy. And I started teaching really young, like 21. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was passionate. Like I loved what I was learning. I was so excited about it. I wanted to share it with people and that hasn't changed. Like I learned things from my own experience or from watching the people that I work with and really being in relationship to life. And so when I learned something, like this process just dropped into my being from talking with a friend of mine that was really suffering. And boom, this whole process dropped in the warrior heart practice. And I was like, huh, okay, let's try this. And to, to be able to share really practical tools to help people get more free and, and understand that they're enough. I mean, oh my gosh, especially in America, we're so, one of the core stories we have is I'm not enough, right? I need more to be okay. And we're in such this cycle of looking outside of ourselves. So it's incredibly joyful to, to be in service to people to help them wake up to what's already inside of them. That wisdom is already there. We already know what the truth is. I re- believe we're already connected to intent. We just don't realize it because we're buried by the stories. And so helping people uncover the stories so that they wake back up again. It's really exciting. Is the warrior heart practice suitable for uh, children and young adults? Absolutely. It's a great way to help kids of all ages, whether they're really young or whether they're teenagers, to start to learn about these different aspects of self. So with really little kids, you can... Ask kids, what are you feeling? 
how do you feel about that? And to ask them questions and to have them tell you where they're feeling things and to encourage them to express and share their emotions. Because kids' emotional bodies are incredibly fluid. They've done studies where the average emotion for a child is like seven seconds. Um, so if the, if the child knows it's okay to have a feeling, they'll express it and it'll move. You can also then start teaching kids when they're a little bit older, what's the difference between a story and the truth? Is that something that is happening in your head or did that, is that what really happened? You know, what actually happened? And so you can start to help them to, to talk to them, to say, I know you're feeling hurt that Mary wasn't paying attention to you in class, but is it a story or is it true that she absolutely doesn't like you? Maybe, and you can start to show them, you know, maybe she had a rough day at home and she's really inward right now. And so there's ways that you can really gently and lovingly train kids to be in a good relationship with their emotional body, to start to understand the difference between a story and a truth. And that will help them tremendously as adults and as kids. I owned a, a, a metaphysical bookstore, a gift store for about 19 years. That's one of my past um, gigs and um, sold a lot of books, workshops, etc. And this is something that, that I experienced uh, and I've done my best to not embody it myself, but tell me about spiritual smugness. Uh, I first came upon this term when I was in an airplane and there was a, a woman who was a vegan who was really upset that she didn't get her stuff like the way she wanted it. And, and I just recognized looking at her and how upset she was and how angry she was at the world um, and the people around her that sometimes we can use, and I've done this myself and it's something that we all I think have to be aware of no matter how much practice we've had that it's really easy to slip into I've done this many years of spiritual work therefore I'm better than you or therefore I get to be um, you know look down at you or I get to be angry because you're not behaving the way that you should if you were spiritual as well or if you were doing the right thing doing it the right way and so to to really recognize that it's it can be easy to use our spiritual practice or our growth or our healing as a way to make ourselves feel better, which is where we can get spiritually smug. I'm now better than you because of this. And that's a trap. So you know, we, in the Toltec world, we talk about the importance of watching for self-importance the place where we say I'm better than you and also self-effacement, which is the place where we say I'm worse than you. Mm-hmm. Both of those are traps and they're masks. And we want to really stand in the truth that each of us have different experiences. We're in different places, but that doesn't make anybody better than or worse than anyone else. And humility is an incredible gift to give ourselves. It takes a lot of um, just story out of the picture. (laughs) We can put it that way. Mm -hmm. Feeling, story, truth, intent, 
and then circling back. As we begin to close the program, can you spend a couple of minutes talking about circling back? When you go through the process, you do each of the different chambers, and you get to the, the fourth chamber of intent, and you pick your one word, and that one word of your intent is your focus. Where do you want to put your energy going back into the situation? So it might be peace, it might be love, it might be presence, it might be joy, it can be anything, any word. And then you go back into the truth chamber. And how I see it is that you now have a new ally. The ally of your intent is going to be your North Star. It's going to help you decide what actions you're going to take next. So if your word is love, that may cause you to take a different action than say if your word was using my voice, your word was voice. And it may be the same action, but they may be very different depending on the situation. And when you step back into the truth chamber, you're also then gathering the ally, the guide of the truth. What do I know is actually true here? And how you know when something is true is it's incredibly simple. So the truth is going to be one sentence with a period on it. Okay. The man stormed off, period. That's true. Anything after that is story. Okay, going back to, the, to that wonderful story that you shared about the airport. And so you take your intent, you take the truth, and you step back into the story chamber. But now you're able to look at your story with new eyes. And sometimes your story evaporates immediately. The moment you name the truth or you gather your intent, the story you just realize, oh, this story isn't true. Like it's completely fictional and it just dissipates. But sometimes there's really deep stories that take longer to untangle. And so having those allies of the truth and your intent to go back into the story and to go back into your, your life, because the story is continuing, you've created it or it's been created. And so now you get to navigate it, but now you get to navigate it using your intent. And it's really important to, to understand, too, your intent isn't, I want the world to be this way or this person should be different. Your intent is what you are going to bring back because you can't change anyone else, period. That's a really important truth for us to remember. It's not always easy to remember. It's a really important one. So, And then we always close in the feeling chamber, asking ourselves, what am I feeling because what we're learning to do is navigate our life from a feeling sense rather than just always from story so that we can know when something's off because we feel it in our being. There's a lot of wisdom in our body and in our emotional body. And the more you clear the story out, the more your own creativity, your own intuition, your own wisdom and knowing starts to show up and be readily available for you. In your life. Uh, when is your next workshop for people that are listening? Um, is that posted on your website? It is. I'm doing a big online uh, video webinar through the Shift Network, which is happening January 29th. So that's the next big public event. And then I do live workshops starting at the end of February and into March. The website is Heather Ash Amara. That's Heather Ash and then 
Amara, A-M-A-R-A, dot com. And my last question, Heather Ash, is what do you do for fun? <laughs> Doing it right now. Um, okay. I love being in nature and hiking, and I also love pretty much everything that I do. Like, I just find joy in everything, whether I'm scrubbing the toilet or whether I'm out at some exquisite restaurant someplace in Cancun, which will happen later tonight. Mm. It's all joy. You just have so much gratitude for life. Thank you so much for taking time from your weekend to be with us. And thank you for the gift of your book. And I hope that many people um, uh, benefit by your work and your book. So, uh, Heather Ash, be well. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. Heather Ashamara, this brand new book just got released in, uh, I think, January 7th. The Simple, excuse me, The Warrior Heart Practice. A simple process to transform confusion into clarity and pain into peace. Her website is heatherashamara.com. Jim Shorty, have you enjoyed yes, the, the conversation? I have. What an engaging and, and wise and delightful person. I really enjoyed the conversation. You know, I think good stuff, like she talked about, stuff. it's always practical and it's stuff that you can, that you can, that you can use. Mm-hmm. Um, the sense I got from her book was that this is not esoteric, that you don't have to climb uh, the Himalayas. You can be right where you're at right now in life and start this work and live a more dynamic, fulfilling life. Absolutely. And I guess if if we asked everybody listening, do you want to live a more dynamic, fulfilling life? I don't think there's anybody that's going to say. Yeah, who's going to say no? (laughs) No. I want less. No. Hey, so my friend, what are you doing for the rest of the weekend? I'm going to work on catching up on some of my home projects, I think. Okay. So I'm going to try to just get better. I've had some chest congestion, and the affirmation is that I'm mm-hmm. getting 20 to 40% better every right, day. Right, good, good. And next week we have Amit Goswami. His brand-new book is Quantum Spirituality. That I, sounds interesting. I hope you folks can join us. Stay tuned for Beta Radio coming up next. And uh, we appreciate you being out there. Thank you so much for you being you. I'm Scott Colborn. Until next week, walk in beauty.